BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Just watch me. The medium is the message. Proof is a proof. What kind of proof? It's a proof. It has no core identity. Smashed potatoes are no gravy. You know what I'm saying? Speaking uh, moistly on them. Hello and welcome to Just Watch Me. I'm Kate. And I'm Liv. Today we're talking about the Giangameshi investigation and trial. We're giving this to you as a two-parter. The first episode will be about uh, the allegations, the Toronto Star investigation of the allegations, and our second episode will be about the trial itself and the aftermath. For those who don't know, John Gameshi was a very popular CBC radio host. He had a show called Q, which was extremely popular uh, up until his fall from grace, you could say. He's been now been accused by, I believe the number is 24 women He was charged with four counts of sexual assault and one count of overcoming resistance by choking on the basis of the allegations of three complainants. But as I said, there have been many more allegations against him. He was acquitted of all charges, and that's the basis of our show. So let's start first with Gian Gameshi and who he was. I want to put a little bit of a disclaimer to say that our focus is not going to be on him, but we want to talk about the particular position of power he was in in order to situate the rest of our story so uh kate can we can you start us off by just who is he so jiang meshi is probably known best for q which is a radio show on cbc but they also televise it and it's got a pretty popular youtube channel but jiang meshi has been a I suppose, Canadian celebrity for a few different reasons throughout his life. First had some fame from his band called Moxie Fruvis, which he put together after uh, his time at York University. They were a satirical satirical folk band. Um, He was the drummer and singer. Moxie Fruvis was touring through most of the 90s. They toured in Canada and the States. They were platinum in Canada, but the rise kind of ended. And once that happened, Giangameshi was looking for other opportunities. He landed at 
Play, which was a, a CBC show for a short time. It was a TV music show. It was eventually canceled. I think the the big game changer in his career was Q, the CBC radio show. As we said, it is a radio show, but it's, it's, it's televised on CBC and it's streamed on YouTube. It has a pretty significant viewership on TV and YouTube. So the format of the show is this. It begins with a scripted opening monologue and then it has some interviews. The opening monologue is about three minutes. It's usually about some issue. People credit him for that really thoughtful opening monologue. Of course, since we've learned that he never wrote those monologues, which is true in the case of many shows, but um, this opening essay, is, it wasn't really from the mind of Gian. It was really from the mind of, I think, Brian Colton and Sean Foley, the two senior producers of Q. But it had this opening monologue people liked and then to the interviews. And he was known for being a great interviewer. Barbara Walters told him he was a very good interviewer. He did an interview with Barbara Streisand, which which I watched, who seems really taken with him and at the end of it. And she doesn't give a lot of interviews, so it was significant that she got that she was on the show. At the end of it, she looks into his eyes and grabs his hands and gives him a very sincere thank you. Um, he's also praised for how he handled a really terrible interview with Billy Bob Thornton. Liv, can you tell us about the Billy Bob interview? Billy Bob Thornton. I, I assume came on to the show under the pretense that he would not, uh, under the pretense probably negotiated by his PR team that he would not have to speak about his acting career and that the interview would be solely faced, uh, solely based on his new musical endeavors. And it appears that Gian is adhering to those restrictions to those limitations however in introducing billy bob thornton he says about his his previous acting career or i guess probably still ongoing acting career um and billy bob thornton takes great offense to this and immediately gets his back up is quite rude in the interview very short um and giving answers that that really don't make sense to the question given you can tell how uncomfortable his bandmates are. Uh, the, the whole vibe is very tense, but Gian does, to his credit, handle it with some grace and is able to tackle it head on and get uh, Billy Bob at least talking a little bit. However, they don't seem to leave on good terms because Billy Bob actually doesn't perform with his band at the end of it. Anyway, this this interview became quite infamous. It garnered over 3 million hits on YouTube, which at the time, um, in, you know, the early 2000s, was a very impressive feat. The big moment came about 12 minutes in. Billy Bob calls Canadians mashed potatoes without the gravy, and Gameshi responds, oh, we've got some gravy. <laughs> which, I mean... He was pretty praised for, but I'll be honest, I don't think is that impressive of a retort. It's just, I didn't buy what it, what he was selling. Supposedly, Billy Bob's band had been booed at Massey Hall like a night or a couple nights before. And then after this, at some point, they just canceled the rest of the Canadian tour because it was going so terribly. So I think we, was, we talk about his reputation on cue, that he's so liberal and so feminist, whatever. And that we're kind of teasing that he used to talk about how he liked rough sex at work and stuff. And then I think that leads really nicely into workplace bully section. So what do we know about 
Jean Gomeshi's reputation during his time at Q, and maybe even a little bit before. It seemed pretty clear, based on how he carried himself on Q, that he was quite liberal and that he was a feminist. I wanted to talk about this because a lot of the articles I've read kind of characterizing his demise and his fall from grace, well, we were so shocked because he had this reputation. I just want to caveat that characterization a little bit because there are plenty of women who talk about him being, you know, if not harassing, sexually inappropriate for a very long time, including um, as, you know, the boss, the host of Q. So Leah McLaren writes for Toronto Life about, she was friends with John Gameshi. She says, there was something unsettling and also engaging about John's habit of mixing the prim with the pervy. Even back then, his Moxie Fruvis days, he enjoyed flipping back and forth between politically correct and sexually inappropriate. When she met him, he said to her, <laughs> one of the first things he said to her was, I'm going to this orgy tonight. Do you want to come? He was weird, but also charming. Lee McLaren also says, John used liberalism and feminism the way Roy Cohn used McCarthyism as a grand scheme of moral superiority that hit his deeper, more urgent desires. Did it turn him on to correct his Q staffers for using sexist language like manning the phone and then punch women for pleasure in private? I think this maybe is a little bit speculative that he's using his liberalism and his feminism as a cover, but I think it's at least interesting um, because certainly a lot of the men who have read articles about him, you know, talk about his lim- a lot of people who didn't know him talk about his liberalism and feminism and seem so shocked that he could do this, whereas there are plenty of people who know him who describe him as inappropriate at times. Um, a former Q contributor who knew Gian and, and knew about how he supposedly liked rough sex said he used to delight in the bit of dirty talk before the producer switched the mics on. Just seconds before going on air, he said he liked it when his girlfriend wore a certain baggy wool sweater because he knew it was obscuring the bruises on her breasts. This is well before any of the allegations he was carrying himself out like this. Sorry, well before any of the allegations he seemed to have been carrying on like this. Going slightly further back as well, in a podcast called Broadcasting Canada, uh, there was a woman who spoke about seeing Jean Gameshi at a Juno party in Winnipeg, and that was in 2005. And she remembers seeing him and recognizing him, and she was with a male friend who said, "Just, just be careful with him. And she spoke about that, that there was this kind of knowledge in the in the entertainment community that he was dangerous. And it doesn't seem like anyone really articulates what that what that meant. But when you have, you know, people spreading that kind of language throughout the community, it's very concerning. And of course, this was back in 2005, like long before any of these allegations came out. So all this to say, he was at the very least sexually inappropriate or creepy, potentially harassing, potentially dangerous for long before these allegations came out. And I think that's a great point, Liv, and we're going to talk about kind of the role of the Whisper Network. Certainly when we talk about, you know, the allegations of collusion at trial, that's going to be a theme, Um, how, especially among women, how they tend to warn each other it's one way that we both heal and protect each other is that kind of communication Mm -hmm. and just the last bit about his character and his reputation 
people who have worked on Q, even people who know him, describe him as, um, you know, narcissistic, incredibly thin-skinned, deeply insecure, and even uh, cruel. I want to use that to transition into talking about what he was like as the boss of Q, as the host of that show. Can you tell us about what he was like as the host of Q? I'm I'm just going to get right to the heart of the investigation that took place at CBC here to um, to give some more accurate depictions of what actually happened. So Janice Rubin was hired by the CBC in order to undertake an independent investigation of the workplace at Q specifically and these these were some of the allegations that different employees at the CBC who worked with John Gameshi alleged they said he was persistently late very disrespectful of other colleagues times he would ignore colleagues for short or lengthy periods of time if they had done something that made him upset he was often moody difficult emotionally unavailable he often yelled and doled out harsh criticism he also made a number of requests that were more of a personal nature that he would ask his colleagues to undertake he diminished the role and contributions of many of the colleagues by not appropriately crediting them for work that they had done he often commented on the appearances of some colleagues and these comments were described as being demeaning, inappropriate, and unwanted. He played cruel pranks, though that section of the report was largely redacted, though I was very curious about what was there. Yeah. And uh, the one of the last biggest things was that he gave a number of colleagues back and shoulder massages that were unwanted and they were described as being creepy and disrespectful of personal boundaries um so that was the section of the report that focused mostly just on the um abuse there is another section that talks specifically about uh sexual uh harassment and assault allegations so we we can take that in turn it's a it's a pretty long list but i do think it's important to to say that it it wasn't just necessarily one thing, right? It was a culture of a lot of behavior that all worked towards creating a very toxic work environment. And I believe it's the the six producers who went forward to CBC management in July of 2012 that, that set this whole investigation in motion who describe it as a culture of fear. Just put a signpost about the Catherine Burrell allegation which was about sexual harassment and assaults, specifically at work. She was a producer on Q. We're going to talk about that in the tri- in the second episode after the trial because she had a se- because her matter was a separate hearing and resulted in a peace bond. Her allegations are certainly a piece of this culture of fear and harassment at Q. I think it's important here to we really can't overstate this idea of host-centric culture that uh, Janice Rubin talks about in her report because a really important context to this whole situation 
is how much of a big a big deal and star Jian actually was at the CBC and the producers talk about this how they felt that it was important for them to constantly please him to keep him happy because he was the star of their show and to some extent I think it's probably we can assume that they were concerned about their own livelihood if something happened to the show. The report also talks about how there was virtually no oversight in terms of who the producers could go to because to some extent, the, all of everyone involved in Q, their boss was Jiang Gameshi. And so it's, it's also understandable how they, how intimidating it would be to go up to higher ups at CBC to complain about your boss when maybe you know maybe the yelling or or disrespectful comments seemed like it was just par for the course of keeping the host happy and I think that there's this myth in um and the entertainment industry that stars are often really difficult to deal with they're divas and 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 everything like that so I I don't think that these producers necessarily recognized that his behavior was um, inappropriate in that way. They just felt like this is how stars behave and this is, we just need to act accordingly. And I think that that that's, seems to be clear in the report, how, how a lot of the employees were feeling and why they took so long to come forward to executives in CBC. In talking about this host-centric culture, I think here we see maybe even a perfect case of how workplace, toxic workplace environments are pushed under the rug by these massive corporations in order to, I don't know, keep their hosts happy, keep their ratings high. I'm not really sure what's motivating them. The problem of workplace harassment doesn't just begin and end with Q. It doesn't exist in a silo. It's part of a bigger systemic problem. And so I think it's interesting to uncover the role that CBC played in this whole thing and the responsibility to some extent that the CBC does bear, which I think personally was significantly underplayed by the media in a way that I think that the CBC got away from this whole thing relatively scot-free, and I don't think that they should have. Among the allegations that were alleged by the employees in the Rubin report, there were also a, a small number of allegations of sexual harassment that were being alleged by the employees. In this report, she outlines a number of specific allegations, which I'll tell you now. So Gameshi was overly familiar with a number of female employees. As I said before, he gave them back rubs, massages that were unsolicited. In one instance, Gameshi subjected a female employee to unwanted physical contact that was sexual in nature. Occasionally, Gameshi would ask women out in the who were in the workplace he flirted with a number of women in the workplace including guests he had on the show 
They also alleged that he overshared information of a personal nature, including details about his sex life. These employees found these t- this information to be way too personal, often overly graphic, and generally unsavory is how they described it. He also was involved in a personal relationship with a coworker. Although it seemed like this relationship was consensual, there was a clear power dynamic between the two of them that um, made the inf- in, made the relationship inappropriate because, of course, Gameshi was her boss at the time of their relationship. Um, the other thing that was really interesting in the Rubin report was that she talked about a number of uh, circumstances that the CBC had the opportunity to investigate. There was red flags being waved to certain CBC executives and they didn't take the opportunity to look into the matter further. And Janice Rubin considered this to be particularly problematic that they had opportunities and passed on disciplining or even investigating further into allegations that were being brought. Um, And of course, we know that there was a particular woman who, this was separate from, this was not in the Rubin Report, uh, but there was a particular female employee who Gameshi had told that he wanted to angry fuck. And then when she went to her uh, higher ups at CBC, they, she never ended up making a formal complaint. And what they told her or what they asked her was how she could take steps in order to make it a better work environment. And this kind of idea, again, harping back to what we talked about before, about this host-centric culture and that everyone's had to, everyone had to operate around him and his moody whims and, and his needs and desires is obviously incredibly problematic. And I think it also goes beyond just like, host-centric culture to this idea that somehow women who experience sexual harassment or sexual assault are some are somehow to blame uh which of course is a a myth and and untrue i think in addition to the host culture piece another theme that we see in these cases of high profile sexual assault and harassment allegations is the army of people surrounding these mostly guys who are working to keep the abuse or harassment under wraps. Zhang Meshi already had a reputation for some of his relationships with women. He was known as a quote-unquote serial dater in Canada. Less than a year before the first Toronto Star allegations, Toronto Life was working on a story about all the women that he had dated. And a Toronto Life reporter had been contacting some of his ex-girlfriends for this article about him. John Gameshi got wind of this, and his publicist, Deborah Golbat-Sadowski, sent a letter to the magazine saying that John is upset about this kind of story. I'd like to see these emails stopped. And she offered to work with the magazine on a quote-unquote more interesting story that focused on Gian. And so the magazine killed the piece on his ex-girlfriends, and he commissioned, they commissioned a profile, which was, I think, largely flattering. But there have been other rumblings about his dating life even before this. So in 2013, there was a blog post on a website called ExoJane titled, 
I accidentally went on a date with a presumed gay Canadian C-list celebrity who creepily proved he isn't gay. The piece doesn't name Gomeshi, but it references a well-known radio host that it calls Keith. She describes him as very handsy and incapable of taking a hint. She describes the outing as emotionally scarring. And despite being posted on this blog, the story caught on in the media. And John Gameshi didn't deny this piece was about him, but he just said it's largely untrue, which to me would seem to confirm that it's about him. So after this post was published, four other women who anonymously came forward with their own stories of sexual assault and they all made a citation to her post and stated that Keith was in fact Gameshi. So why don't we talk about the Toronto Star slash Jesse Brown investigation? That's exactly what I was hoping you'd say. So an ex-girlfriend of John Gameshi's, who is, is still anonymous to this day, approached Jesse Brown with allegations of abuse by John Gameshi. Jesse Brown, for those who don't know, is a independent journalist. Uh, he has he hosts a very popular podcast called Canada Land, which is basically mostly about media criticism. Knowing that he didn't have the resources to take this on, Jesse Brown approached several organizations, uh, including the Toronto Star, who agreed to to take on the story with Jesse. Uh, and Kevin Donovan was put on the story. Kevin Donovan wrote a book called Secret Life, which informs a lot of this podcast. Jesse Brown and the Star began investigating allegations against John Gameshi. Because there are now 23 people who have accused John Gameshi of abuse or harassment, we're going to, to mostly talk about some of the similarities because there are pretty stark similarities between a lot of these allegations, which is often the case with sexual predators. Liv, do you want to maybe talk about what these early, some of the features of these early allegations and, and, and what tend to be similar about these allegations against John Gameshi. So those who came forward alleged that Gameshi had non-consensually hit them, bit them, choked them, obstructed their breathing, and verbally abused them during their sexual encounters. These stories shared a commonality of manipulative behavior perpetrated by Gameshi. What's interesting about some of the allegations is that some of this physical abuse seems to have began even before anything like romantic or intimate or sexual has happened. Some of these women report being choked uh, or hit with an open and closed fist even before any sexual contact has begun. We also among these allegations had a man come forward who claimed that Gameshi had non-consensually touched him while they were working together on a project at York University. And so, of course, this means that the allegations had covered a huge period of time dating back to when uh, Jian Gameshi was in university, which is very troubling for obvious reasons. About a month and a half before this investigation goes underway, Jian Gameshi gets an email from a woman that he's dating, who is anonymous to this day, who accuses him of violence. She calls him sadistic. She accuses him of being violent to her and others. And she questions how we can be so passionate about human rights and violence against women and still carry on this way. 
she says she spoke to other women who provided photos and videos of significant bruising on their bodies, which had been done by Gameshi. He's quite shaken by this email. He responds to her, I'm shaking as I read this, can we please talk? In a very creepy coincidence, it was on this day that Jiang Gameshi convened a debate on Q about rape culture. About two weeks after this, Jiang Gameshi notices that he's tagged in a new Twitter account with very few tweets called at Big Ears Teddy. For those who don't know, Big Ears Teddy is the name of a bear that he kept in his bedroom. He got this stuffed bear, I think, on the advice of his therapist as a way of managing his, his anxiety. He apparently spoke to the bear. Um, so the bear was an important, very personal fact about Jiangameshi. This Twitter account had very few tweets. All of them were detailing allegations of abuse by Gameshi. So the email from Paula, the Twitter account, the pressure on Gameshi is starting to mount. He reaches out to his two senior producers on Q, the very same ones who write his monologue that he gets credit for, Sean Foley and Brian Colton. He tells them, and this is important because this is the story that he maintains, right? That he is into rough sex, but that's what this is. This was all consensual rough sex, and that's what he's into. And that he's being persecuted for um, this preference. And that a crazy ex-girlfriend is threatening to go public with his information about his private life. Again, that's also how it's characterized that you know, the CBC fired him because of his private life. This is information about his, the, consensual, the consensual activities that he's carrying out in his private life. So Giangameshi, who's already an anxious person, is feeling the pressure. And... Not so long after this, on his podcast, Canada Land, Jesse Brown teases that he has a monster story that would be, quote, worse than embarrassing for some people. Gomeshi hears this. He assumes that Jesse Brown is referring to him. The kicker is Jesse Brown was not referring to him, and the story had been on hold because the star was uncomfortable running with these anonymous sources and didn't think they had enough to publish this story, but this very prominent media figure. But after hearing this, in an attempt to get ahead of the story, Gomeshi brings material uh, to the CBC Top Brass to warn them that this story is out there and kind of discloses to them that he is into rough sex and that he has a jilted ex-girlfriend who's trying to ruin him. Gomeshi brings photos and a video and messages of this of a woman he's an intimate with that show her injured body and bruising. And the material was supposed to explain how it could be possible to bruise somebody and crack their ribs. She had a cracked rib during consensual sex play. This is obviously the inciting event that leads CBC to fire him. I think what's really interesting is the lack of self-awareness on Gameshi's part that he brings this forward to be vindicating right? That he thinks that this is a way he's going to protect himself by, you know, like, I guess, what is whatever he thinks, public education about rough sex or whatever. But that is not the reaction. And apparently after seeing this, the two execs, according to Kevin Donovan, run to go find their CBC superiors. And this is what forms the basis of his dismissal from CBC. So on October 26, 2014, CBC fires Gomeshi. Okay, so this was all this all went on on a Friday. 
they want to fire Gomeshi. They agree to give him the weekend, during which time we can presume that he crafted his pretty famous first Facebook post about this event. But he's officially terminated and it goes public on October 26, 2014. And a few hours later, the star publishes their first story. There are three anonymous sources who allege violent assaults. After Gameshi was terminated from his employment, he responded later that day with a Facebook post outlining the allegations that were being made against him. And he really was able to frame the narrative of the story of what happened. He was the first voice that the public really heard on this. And so as a consequence, it put him in a, at a huge advantage because where he's able to frame the narrative in such a way that he can be a protagonist and everybody else can be the villain before anyone really gets a chance to speak on it. And of course, Gameshi is, you know, a celebrity in Canada to some extent. He has a he has a certain authority to him. People respect him. They know him. They've learned to trust him. And so, of course, you can imagine that when he makes this statement, the public's first instinct isn't necessarily to doubt him because they're on on his side to some extent. Of course, that's not necessarily what continued to happen, but he, he was able to get ahead of it. And Liv, you pointed this out when we were just discussing this but so i want to credit you but the cbc does bear some responsibility for allowing gameshi to get ahead of this story and control the narrative so i mean i'm not saying they're responsible for all this because they let him pay the weekend but they let him tell the story first mm. and that's part of that's on them so i just want to take a second to talk about some specifics in his statement um because there was a really interesting article written by jessica dyke she points out a couple of really interesting things in this article. One of them is that he's able to, I mean, if you've seen it, you know that it's actually quite a long Facebook post. And he uses the beginning of it to build up his credibility and show his track record. He then goes on to portray a story of collusion between a salty ex-lover and a journalist who hate him and that they are working to bring him down and that is the basis of the story. I also think it's really interesting how he then goes on to frame the consensual sex as being similar to what happens in the popular novel Fifty Shades of Grey. I think that what's very disappointing to me and I imagine the BDSM community is that to equate what he is accused of with BDSM is deeply misguided and irresponsible. And that the, the entire basis of the case against Jiang Meshi, I think in both the, in the courts and, and um, in the media is that there is these violent activities without consent. And I, and as listeners may know that the BDSM community and, and BDSM play is obsessed with the idea of consent in a way that even vanilla sex often isn't and in a lot of ways is a model for consent because of this obsession with um with consent and i think it's disappointing that 
especially because BDSM is so stigmatized, he's using, you know, to use BDSM as a way to explain away allegations. It's a fundamental misunderstanding of what BDSM is. I also think it's interesting in his statement how he characterized the position that the CBC was in, which I think actually makes the CBC look quite bad because he says that the CBC believed him when he came to them with uh, the situation, but they didn't want to risk their own reputation by um, keeping him as an employee and a host of a prominent show. He's uh, framing the narrative, you know, he can say whatever he wants about the situation. And I think lastly and most strikingly is that he's ultimately framing his own sexual preferences as a fundamental human right which paints himself ultimately as the victim which i just think is is obviously so far from the truth of the this situation Liv and i talked a lot about in our preparation about how to talk about this because we want to convey you know what an important figure he was in media without piling on praise about him whatever I do want to say the statement is a pretty it's it's a it's a good piece of writing like I think it's it draws on themes that people can get behind it, it uses popular media as a way of explaining it uses the 50 shades of gray he's drawing on human rights he's known as this liberal advocate he's she's he kind of is drawing on Pierre Trudeau imagery when he says let me be the first to say my taste in the bedroom may not be palatable to some folks we all have our secret life but that is my private life it reminds me of Trudeau senior saying something along the lines of the government has no place in the bedrooms of the nation like the way that he's crafted this is I think pretty expert and I think that it, it did him a lot of his reputation a lot of good at the outset of this without giving him too much praise for being a good writer, but he's a good writer or whoever wrote this is a good writer. So after this post, I think we can presume at least in part because of his ability to get ahead of the story, as they say, a lot of people were supporting him. A lot of friends immediately came out supporting him publicly, but as the allegations mount, we have fewer and fewer defenders and we have, we start to see people actively distancing themselves from him. So he's dropped by his publicist, Deborah Goldblatt-Sadowski, who is supposedly the, the one who caught and killed that Toronto Life story about his dating life. She drops him. The crisis PR firm, Navigator, which you may have heard of, drops him as a client. His longtime agent, Jack Ross, who started working with him when Moxie Furious was like busking on Queen West, drops him as a client. He was also managing the artist Lights. She drops him as her manager, although she did support him initially and then backtracks. Slowly, his friends and supporters are thinning out. The walls are closing in around Gian. And I think it was Leah McLaren that said, soon the volume of accusations crushed any lingering doubt. And by November 2014, we have over 20 women accusing him of assault or harassment, ranging from slapping, hitting, punching, choking, biting. The current number of accusations is at 20, is at 23. And Six accusers have named themselves 17 remain anonymous. Okay, so let's transition to talk about the legal consequences of the firing. So after that he posted this statement, the first legal action that began was a $50 million lawsuit that he filed against the CPC for wrongful dismissal. 
Now, because of all the backlash that Katie previously stated, on November 25th, 2014, Jim Gameshi withdrew the lawsuit against the CBC. And the next day, Gameshi was charged with four counts of sexual assault and one count of overcoming resistance by choking. More charges did come. They eventually, the police eventually laid three more charges of sexual assault, uh, but two of them were dropped by the Crown. Gameshi pleaded not guilty to all of these charges. And on November 26th, exactly one month after being fired from the CBC, Gameshi turned himself over to the police. As the allegations continue to mount, as the public starts to turn on Gomeshi, as Gomeshi's friends start to turn on Gomeshi, Gomeshi and his lawyers prepare for what will become one of the most famous trials in Canadian history. Next episode, we're going to set the scene. We're going to talk about the woman herself, Marie Hennen. We'll talk about the trial, some of the evidence, and we'll talk about the aftermath and the public conversation we have begun to have in this country about sexual assault and harassment. So stay tuned and we will see you next week for part two. I was going to give it a title and then I had nothing. For part two, the trial and the aftermath. Thanks.